So here we are, Mother's Day. And we have a traditional message that uh, I've been giving for the last few years. I guess it's been for quite a while now because it's good to be reminded. You know, it's good to every year to have a spot where we kind of come back down and revisit some themes that are so critically important. If we are going to understand what our relationship with this God that we talk about all the time is really like, what is this relationship really like? You know, I got a question years ago, several years ago. Um, from someone, and I just thought it was an excellent question. She said, I know that God loves me, but how do I know that God likes me? And I want you to think about that for just a second, and what a great question that is. Now, on the face of it, it may sound a little absurd, but think about it a little bit more deeply. What's the difference between loving and liking? See, like implies affection. It implies a genuine delight a genuine pleasure in someone's company. It implies a desire to be with that person, a playful sort of affection. It applies, implies having fun. Love doesn't necessarily combine all of those emotions, but liking absolutely does. We have been commanded to love, right? We all know that. Commanded to love. Even love the enemy, but we haven't been commanded to like anything. Ever thought about that? We haven't been commanded to like anything because it's impossible to command anybody to like anything. Love can be a decision, but this is why liking is so precious to us. We can choose to love, but we can't choose what we like. It's not under our control. Do you like bacon or do you like broccoli? I didn't have any control over that, you know? I don't like the green stuff so much. It's not what I can, I can just, I don't know, just born that way, ever since I can remember as a kid, trying to hide that stuff under something else on the plate. You love your family. You would probably say you love your family. Do you like everyone in your family? Did you choose not to like someone in your family? You just do, right? It's just there. It isn't something that we really have a choice over. But the beautiful thing is if we choose to love someone or something long enough and we show up to the behavior that love requires, it's amazing how much liking can follow. But we don't have any control over it. We can't flip a switch. We can't make ourselves like something. But we can choose to love. This is why liking is so precious. Now, if we know that God loves us, why would we doubt that he likes us? Well, the first reason is, is that we know how unlikable we can all be at times, right? How can God like me with everything that's going on? But the second reason is, is that we, especially here in the West, but in general, tend to focus on God as Father. We call him Father. We focus on God as male. We focus on God as King. All of these, we focus on love as justice, as connected to king, as connected to father, as connected to God. We associate God, our father, with our human father, where approval was typically earned. That's the standard in the house, right? I've known several guys that were raised by fighter pilots. Wow, they had lots of issues that they were trying to unwind and unpack and untie because of the standards that were so high. We tend to focus on God as father, as male, but is that the correct focus? 
Is that where we're supposed to be focusing? Because what about mom? What about mom, right? Is there a mother God for us in Scripture? Is there a mother God in heaven that we can relate to, that we need to relate to, if we're really going to understand what God is all about and our relationship with God is all about? Now, we've been talking about paradox for the last few weeks, and it's really been, I think, a good discussion uh, on our Tuesday nights, I'm sorry, our Wednesday nights as well as Sunday mornings. And the paradox that we've been talking about, in case you're hearing it for the first time, was the idea that life presents seeming contradictions to us all the time. But if we just choose one or the other, make one right and the other wrong, everything stops. We learn nothing more. But what really is present in those contradictions is a paradox. Paradoxes can't be resolved, should not be resolved. If we can live in the sacred tension between the horns of the paradox, we can get to the other side and find the unity, not the resolution of the paradox, but the way that it all fits together in a deeper way. That's what we've been talking about in terms of paradox. And we've been hitting some really controversial issues. Heaven and hell are paradox. Life and death are paradox. How are we supposed to live full lives with the knowledge of death? How are we supposed to live with the promise of heaven when we have to deal with hell? These are the kinds of topics that we have been trying to talk through. And so here is another one, another possibly controversial topic, to find a balance between Father God and Mother God, to find a balance and find a love that is beyond duty, beyond justice, and gets all the way to playful attention playful affection. The truth of the matter is we can never experience God and we'll never know God until we admit, first of all, just intellectually, that God is more than just Father. We have to get to that point. And once we experience Mother God in our lives, there's no going back. To get that balance is to get everything that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about entering kingdom. Now, Scripture points us in the direction that we need to go. And the Hebrew language itself, in which our Scriptures were written, points us in the direction we need to go. And if you allow me to get a little bit wonky for a second, and taking this, I love this part. You probably won't, but I love it. So, earliest written languages. You know, we started with spoken languages. So we have all these sounds we can make with our voices and with our lips and our mouths. And we assign those sounds and create words that mean something. And so spoken language precedes the written language. So finally, when someone decides to write something down, the first thing they do is to write pictures of things in the uh, world around them. That's what the cave drawings were all about. So there's pictures of suns and sunsets and there's pictures of animals and people, all the things that can be depicted. And then as those are used over and over again, over time, they get more and more stylized, more and more simplified, and we call those pictograms. And pictograms were these stylized pictures of things that created a written language. Egyptian hieroglyphics are an example of that. Cuneiform is an example of that. But at some point, someone had the absolute brainstorm. Because if you're going to keep writing pictures of things, whether they're concrete or abstract, you have to have hundreds upon hundreds of symbols in order to convey a written language. But there's only so many sounds that you can make with your voice and your mouth, right? Someone finally had this brainstorm and said, why don't we, with our 
characters and our symbols not depict things, but (laughs) depict, easy for me to say, depict the sounds that we can make. And the first phonetic languages were born, which led to the first alphabets. So now we only have 26 letters in our alphabets. The Hebrew alphabet, which really isn't an alphabet, strictly speaking, it's called an abjad. It only has consonants. But there's only 22 of those. 22 characters that can depict an entire language. It was a complete tsunami. It was a a sea change in our ability to depict a written language. Okay, so the Phoenicians come up with their first abjad, a 22-letter abjad. That is what the Hebrews ended up using for their abjad, their alphabet, if you will. And each one of those letters has a name and has a meaning to it. And as you put two letters together, you had what they called a parent root. And between the two letters, you had another meaning that was created. And then if you added a third letter, you had what they called a child root, and that created more meaning. And then as you added fourth and fifth letters, you had actual words. But every one of those in a root and pattern system, if you look vertically from the parent root to the child root to the words themselves, they all carry a similar meaning. And it's almost like you're going back in time as you go from the word back to the child root, the three-letter, and to the lexeme, what they call the two-letter. And so if we really want to understand what the Semitic mind was thinking about when they came up with the meaning of a word, we can go back in time to those roots and understand more clearly what they were thinking about when they thought about things in their world around them. For example, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. Aleph was originally the pictogram or the picture of an ox's head because that was the largest domesticated animal that they knew of. It was the largest, it was the strongest, and really interesting, you know, when you stylize that, you end up with just kind of a, right, a triangular face with two horns. And then somewhere in the record, everything got turned. And so it ended up looking like that. And so now we have our letter A. The letter B, or bet, in their alphabet, was the floor plan of their, floor plan of their typical tent with a, a separation down the middle for the male and female sides. That became our letter B. Dalit, D, was a door. For them, it was a hanging sheet of fabric off of a, off of a cross piece. And so we still have the straight line. And the, it's fascinating how that alphabet became the basis for the Greek and Roman alphabets, which became the basis for our own. And a lot of those letters and those pictograms are still there. So the word for Aleph added to the word het, which was the picture of a wall, was the word for, for brother, Strong wall. It was the brothers that were the army of the clan, of the family. They were the strong wall that set up the the camp. Interesting, right? The ben, the word for son, is bet, house, and nun, which was a germinating seed. And so that was understood as a house that continues. The word for God, al or el, you got Aleph again, so strong, and then Lamed, which originally was a picture of a shepherd's staff, you know, the crook, because the shepherd was the leader of the sheep. And so Al literally means strong leader, ill, strong leader. So with that in mind of how these roots showed the way that the Hebrews were thinking about the world around them and how they created their words, let's get the father. Father is Ab. So be Aleph Bet, R-A and R-B. So we already know that Aleph is strong, 
one of a kind, the greatest, the strongest. Bet is house. So literally, father means strong house. He was understood as the pole that held up the tent. He was understood as what gave structure, what gave substance, what gave provision to the house. Now, mother was Aleph Mem. So you still have the Aleph, which could be pronounced either A or E. And then you have Mem, the word R-M, which meant water. And so even in our M, we still see the ripples of the water, don't we, from the original pictograph. So M meant strong water. Okay, we understand what strong house means, but what the heck is strong water? Well, when the Hebrews would tan their hides, they would boil them. And as they're boiling the hides, a sticky substance would come out of the out of the skins and collect on the surface of the water. They would scoop that out and they would literally use it as an adhesive. It was a glue that they could glue things together with, whatever they needed. So strong water, the mother, was understood as the glue that held the family together. She was the one who was relational. The father was the one who was structural. Structural. She was the one who was relational. She held the family together. And so we start to see the differences in the Semitic mind between the father and the mother. The father was the king. The father was the one who held everything together. He was the, the judge and the jury and the, and the general and the commander. But the mother was the one who made the house really work, made it actually happen. It's not either or in the Semitic mind. It's always both and. Necessary and complementary attributes that they understood. A paradox never gets resolved. Masculine and feminine, father and mother, male and female, never resolves. It's always oscillating. But to live that paradox, to let those two be what they are, but find the unity behind them is how we honor the paradox. The problem is that here in the West, we think linearly. We think in terms of duality, opposite things on separate sides, mutually exclusive, in opposition with one another. We have to choose logically. One is right, the other has to be wrong. Law of non-contradiction, right? If one thing's right, everything else has to be wrong. That's the way that we think. But see, the East, the Hebrews, they think more in terms of a circle. They think in terms of a unity, of a continuum between seeming opposites. Not opposites in opposition to each other, but a continuum from one pole to another. We've talked a lot in here about Taba and Bisha, the Aramaic words for good and evil, which really and literally mean ripe and unripe, immature and mature. And so rather than good and evil being these cosmic opposites, it's just a continuum between unripeness and ripeness, from immaturity to maturity. And it changes everything about the way that we think of good and evil and how God can look at us as unlikable as we think we are and say, oh, you're just in this stage. You're still becoming, Right? It's the same thing with other seeming opposites in, in terms of Nura and, and Heshuka, which is light and darkness. Again, a continuum between the two, necessary between the two. Yama and Layla, day and night, same thing. The daytime, the place to go out, straight lines, clarity of the sun, where you accomplish things. And then Layla, night, where you let them assimilate, consolidate, go into the dream state, the necessary oscillation between the two, complementary, necessary. Not one better than the other, not one right, one wrong, always this continuum. It's the same thing with father and mother. One is not superior to the other. They are both necessary 
and complementary, different but equal, and most importantly, functioning as one. Functioning as one. Is there a mother God? Is God father, male, female, neither, both? It's both functioning as one. The greatest prayer in all of Israel is the Shema. You find it at Deuteronomy 6.4 if you want to look it up. In Hebrew, it's Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It literally means, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, Echad, one. This idea of the oneness of God, but it wasn't just oneness. Elohim is a plural noun. Our Trinity is plural, and yet everything functions as one, presents as one, presents as many, but always functioning as one. Another paradox that we can't resolve. Father and mother are the same. A paradox we can't resolve, but always functioning as one. Strong house, strong water, a perfect marriage, perfect parents, when we can combine those two and not lose one or the other. So, our mother, our mother God, is that sticking in your craw just a little bit? Let's see if we can find it. Some of you say, no, not at all. Come on, bring it on. Take a look at Proverbs. Right at the chapter 1, starting at verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She, notice, lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her saying. Chokhmah, wisdom, always personified as feminine, as female. It was understood to be the balance of God the Father was chokhmah, wisdom, an essential part of God. And think about it. Ruach, rucha in Aramaic, which means spirit. Malkutha, which means kingdom, are all feminine words. Spirit is really she. Kingdom is really queendom, if you really want to get technical about it. Now, they understood God as father, yes, Hebrews. And um, just really quickly, why do we care what the Hebrews think? Because I get that question every once in a while. Because they wrote our scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we as Christians are going to use these scriptures as the basis of our lives and our understanding of our relationship with God, then it seems we should understand what the first writers believed as they wrote these words, or we'll get the wrong impression. They referred to God as Father, King of the universe, but they understood that that wasn't the end of the story. That Mother God was there and necessary, bringing the wisdom, the spirit, the queendom, pointing us toward the necessary experience of intuition, of experience as opposed to just acquired knowledge, of relationship, all versus just simply intellect and accomplishment. If you think about it, knowledge is accomplished, right? Knowledge is acquired. And we think of that as a masculine attribute. Wisdom is experienced. Wisdom is simply lived out. And the Hebrews understood that as a feminine attribute, a deeper kind of knowing than you can get with just acquiring knowledge, acquiring data, acquiring factoids. Knowledge, if you want to put it this way, knowledge is having a lot to say. Wisdom is knowing when to keep your mouth shut. I've heard it said one time that knowledge without wisdom is like a kid with his father's gun. Knowledge is knowing that 
A tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. It's all about this difference between just acquiring data and actually having lived it to the extent that is now part of our being and we understand the way it works. Accomplishment versus relationship. You know, one of the tragedies is, and many in talking to many women who are at midlife or past midlife, they have spent their lives raising kids, raising the family to a large degree, and now they're feeling remorse that they didn't accomplish more because our society doesn't value the relational. Our society doesn't value the hidden things that building relationship requires. Only the external accomplishments. You can measure those, you know, how many sales did you make, how much money did you make, how many awards did you collect, but how many children did you raise? See, it doesn't rise to the same level. We, as a society, have to grow up and realize that these two, have, these two poles have to be honored and have to be seen as absolutely critical to our ability to live relational lives. In Hosea chapter 11, starting at verse 1, the Lord says, and this is Hosea speaking God's words, when Israel was a child, so often Israel is personified as a single person. When Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. How much more beautifully could a mother's love be depicted than in that passage? This is it. God is often anthropomorphized, anthropomorphized as a female in Scripture in just these kinds of passages. One of the names for God is El Shaddai, usually translated as the Mighty One. And this always makes us a little uncomfortable. But Shad, in Hebrew, is the word for breast. Literally, El Shaddai means the mighty breast. It is the one who provides for us, is the one who suckles us, is the one who does exactly what Hosea is talking about here. That was one of the names of God that the Hebrews gave. We lose all of this in translation. How can God be both father and mother at the same time? That's a tough one for us. Another paradox, right? I want to ask you this. Is the earth round or flat? That was a big debate for a long time. Why was it such a big debate? Because ultimately we find out that the earth is round in fact, but it's flat in experience. Our whole day-to-day -day existence is based on the fact that the earth is flat as we live it day-to-day. -day. Those of you who are architects, how can you build on a round surface? It has to be flat. Everything that we experience is a flat earth, but we know that it's round. It's round and it's flat at the same time. It's round in fact, but it's flat in experience. God is the strong house. He's the just leader in fact in our minds, but he's strong water. He's compassionate love and experience 
in the living of our lives. We experience God as mother in our day-to-day reality if we're going to experience God as all, at all. God exists as Father in the abstract. God exists as Father in our minds, in our intellect, in our logic. But when we experience God day-to-day, he's holding us to his cheek. A whole different thing. Jesus had such an intimate relationship with his Father that he called him Abba. And much has been made of this, that Abba is the affectionate, familiar term that children use for their daddies. It's a term of infection. It's a term of endearment. But it's a term of intimacy as well. And he kind of shook things up by calling him Abba because nobody did that. But that's the kind of relationship he had. And yet, we know that Jesus' first experience of his father was as Ima, as Mommy, and his mother Mary, and the relationship that they had. You see, for Jesus and for all of us, until we experience Mother God, Father God always remains distant, out there someplace, up on a big white throne, never quite sure what he's thinking of us. He's not Abba. He's not Daddy. We don't feel comfortable climbing into his lap until first we've experienced Mother God, and we know that it's safe. And Jesus always led every relationship. He led with Mother God. He led with mother. He led with the feminine. He led with relationship. He led with acceptance. And when that was established in relationship, then he went on to the teaching. Then he went on to the masculine aspects. Then he would say, go and sin no more. That wasn't his first pass. It was always after he led with mother God. Because without that connection established first, we miss the whole point of learning. The learning will always take us in the wrong direction if it isn't preceded by connection. Right at the end of Mark 1 and moving into Mark 2, which tells you sometimes they put the chapter divisions in the wrong place, Jesus has three encounters all in a row, and they illustrate this so beautifully. First thing he does is heal a leper. Second thing he does is forgive a paralytic. Third thing he does is call a tax collector, Levi, to himself. And when he meets the the leper and the leper says, if you wish, you can heal me, first thing Jesus does is touch him. You didn't do that in that culture. That broke a ritual boundary. If you touched an unclean person before they were declared clean by the priest in the temple, you were unclean, which meant you had to go outside the city gates. You could no longer be a part of community. That was the worst thing about having some kind of skin disease, that it took you out of community. Jesus just touches him before he heals him. When the paralytic is being lowered through a hole in the roof, first thing Jesus does is call him son. He doesn't know this guy from Adam. Calls him son. And before he does anything else, he says, your sins are forgiven. Notice he doesn't say, I forgive you. He says, I recognize your sins are forgiven. You are in relationship. You are a connection. You have a group of guys who are willing to cut a hole in my roof to lower you down. You got something going on here. You got community. Your sins are forgiven before he does anything else. And when he passes by the customs booth and Levi is working there, he turns and says, come follow me. Levi can't get out of that booth fast enough. And he's so excited, he invites Jesus to dinner at his house that night. Do you know what a scandal it was for Jesus to accept the invitation from a tax collector 
who were the lowest of the low in that society, the collaborators with the hated Romans and the Roman occupation. Jesus breaks ritual boundaries. He breaks theological boundaries. He breaks social boundaries in order to connect first, to lead with mother first, to lead with acceptance first. And then what comes out of that relationship is everything. But until that is established, nothing. We can only be healthy. We can only be balanced as people in this order. Compassion before justice. Mother before father. Acceptance and liking before standards and performance. This is the way it works. Every single one of us needs to experience life in that order before we can be balanced. And I know what some of you are thinking because some of you didn't grow up with loving mothers. It happens. You didn't experience the kind of mother's love that we're talking about right now. That absolutely unconditional liking, you know? Doesn't matter anything. You got a face your mother can love, no matter what. You didn't experience that. Didn't experience that unconditional love. And without that experience, life is frightening. Life can be very difficult. Always wondering if you're good enough. And never really knowing because you've never experienced acceptance before performance. No experience of being liked or accepted for no reason other than just being present, just sitting there breathing. And without that experience, it's hard to imagine that God can like us, accept us for no reason either. But the good news is, is that whatever and whoever has failed you, us, in life, there's always another chance with God. Those chances are never exhausted. This is why we stress contemplative practice. We stress contemplative prayer and spirituality. Our minds are the repository for all the hurts, all the neglect, all the abandonment, everything that has happened to us. All the requirements of performance before acceptance, our minds hold all of that. And it directs who we are. It directs our choices. It directs our attitudes and the way that we experience life. Our minds hold on to that. But as long as God remains only in our minds, in our thoughts, he remains father only, judge only, demanding performance only. But when we can step away from our thoughts, when we can silence them, when we can move out of our head and just live our moments as our moments present, this is where we meet Mother God. This is where we start to experience that everything really can be all right and is all right. And for many of us, this is our first experience with a mother's love, our first experience, our first encounter with that kind of love. And it changes everything. But we have to move beyond the theology and the doctrine and the practice of our religious understanding into the kind of intimate connection in our prayer life that allows us to experience who God really is. In, he in Hebrew, there are two words for this. The first is kiva. The second is kavana. And they express this kind of paradox that we're writing. And I wanted to read a little bit 
from an article about Jewish prayer to see if we can understand this and get the finer point on this and how important it is for us to be able to hold on to both poles at the same time. Because here the paradox is expressed in prayer, never resolved, but experienced as a oneness on the other side. There is a specific difficulty of Jewish prayer. There are laws. How to pray, when to pray, what to pray, There are fixed times, fixed ways, fixed texts. This structure and routine of prayer is called kiva in Hebrew. On the other hand, prayer is worship of the heart, the outpouring of the soul, an inner devotion called kavana in Hebrew that literally means intention, sincere feeling, direction of the heart. Thus, Jewish prayer is guided by two opposite principles, order and outburst regularity and spontaneity, uniformity and individuality, law and freedom, a duty and a prerogative, empathy and self-expression, insight and sensitivity, creed and faith, a word, the word, and that which is beyond words. Mother and father, in other words, This is a list of wonderful paradoxes that need to be experienced as such with the poles held both at the same time, not flopping down to one side or another. Gosh. Order and outburst, regularity and spontaneity, uniformity and individuality, law and freedom, duty and prerogative, empathy and self-expression, insight and sensitivity, creed and faith, word and that which cannot be expressed in word mother and father. These principles are two poles about which Jewish prayer revolves. Not resolves, but revolves. Oscillates. Since each of the two moves in, since each of the two moves in opposite direction, equilibrium can only be maintained if both are of equal force. However, the pole of regularity usually proves to be stronger than the pole of spontaneity. And as a result, there is a perpetual danger of prayer becoming a mere habit, a mechanical performance, an exercise in repetition. The fixed pattern and regularity of our religious services tends to stifle the spontaneity of devotion. Our great problem, therefore, is how not to let the principle of regularity, kiva, impair the power of spontaneity, kavana. It is a problem that concerns not only prayer, but life as a whole. In prayer, halakha, which is Jewish law, insists upon the presence of inward intention, of kavana over mere external performance. Maimonides, a 12th century Jewish philosopher and scholar, declared, prayer without kavana is no prayer at all. Whoever has prayed without kavana ought to pray once more. Don't you like that? Those whose thoughts are wandering or occupied with other things need not pray until they have recovered their mental composure. Hence, on returning from a journey, or if one is weary or distressed, it is forbidden to pray until the mind is composed. How about that? The sages said that upon returning from a journey, one should wait three days until rested and the mind is calm, then pray. Prayer is not a service of the lips. It is worship of the heart. Words are the body. Thought is the soul of prayer. 
If one's mind is occupied with alien thoughts while the tongue moves on, then such prayer is like a body without a soul, like a shell without a kernel. And so it is with words of prayer when the heart is absent. Prayer becomes trivial when ceasing to be an act in the soul. The essence of prayer is agada, inwardness. Yet, it would be a tragic failure not to appreciate what the spirit of Kiva does for prayer, raising it from the level of an occasional experience to that of a permanent covenant. It is through the structure of Kiva that we belong to God, not occasionally, not intermittently, but essentially, continually. Regularity of prayer is an expression of my belonging, which remains valid regardless of whether I am conscious of it or not. We need both. Do you see? Structure and intention, mind and heart, routine and spontaneity, logic and intuition, duty and playfulness, justice and mercy, loving and liking, father and mother. Without both halves of the paradox, we are only half a person. We won't understand relationship. We won't understand love. And we won't understand how we're loved. Without mother, also in in play, we're not in kingdom. Without father, there is no strength. He's a strong house, right? But without mother, there's no reason for the strength, the strong water. Until we embrace God as both father and mother, we're loved and lost at the same time because we simply don't know that we're liked. It's a paradox, one that must never resolve. God is the oscillation between father and mother forever. Only in that oscillation do we find the perfect parent, loving and liking in perfect balance. Jesus shows us most beautifully in the story of the prodigal son what this mother God looks like. And prodigal, you know what prodigal means? It means extravagant. It means wasteful even. You know, just pouring things out without any regard. That's prodigal. So the son is talked about as being the prodigal because he's the one out and spent everything that the father gave him. But really, this story is about the prodigal father, not the prodigal son. One scholar said, this story is when dad acts like mom. I love that. When dad acts like mom, when God, father, pours everything out, regardless of what has been earned, what is right, what is lawful, what is cultural, just pours everything out. This father stands perfectly balanced between two sons. One son that is the son of spontaneity. The other son that is the son of structure. One son that is the son of impulse and extravagance. The other that is the son of routine and dependability. And the father stands as a fulcrum between these two sons. The two sons never resolve in the story. You notice? We don't get resolution. The elder brother hasn't come to the party by the time the story ends. 
They don't resolve. They are still who they are, but they are blended together in the actions of the prodigal father and what he does. And you know the story. We could read it, but maybe just the short form here. The man has two sons, the prodigal son, the spontaneity son, the impulse son, asks for his inheritance before his father is even dead. You know, that was a request that was punishable by, by, by death in that culture. But the father just gives it to him. And he takes off and he goes into a faraway land and he spends it all until he is living at the lowest possible place he could be in Hebrew thought. He's in the pigsty. He's living with unclean animals in the excrement and in that filth. And he finally comes to his senses and said, even my father's servants, the worst of his servants, the lowest of his servants live better than this. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to say, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but just let me come and be a hired hand. And so you can imagine him walking all the way to his father's house, rehearsing this over and over and over again, trying to get it right, rehearsing the conversation. How many times have we done that? Rehearse the conversation, try to get it right, try to figure out the exact way to get the outcome that we're looking for. Meanwhile, the father at home has been watching the horizon at the edge of his property every single day, waiting for his son to return, living the grief of not knowing where his son is or how he fares if he's still alive. And the moment he sees him crest that rise at the edge of his property, he is out the door like a shot. Some strangled cry comes from his throat, and he is running at a dead run. He has to lift up his robe so he can do that. Hebrew patriarchs don't run in that culture. It's undignified. Hebrew patriarchs don't show their skin in public. That's undignified. And his knobby knees are just pumping as he's getting to his son. And the scripture tells us that when he gets to his son, he falls on him and kisses him. And it sounds so, you know, just nice, but kind of vanilla. But if you dig into the language, he falls on his neck, which means he wraps himself around his son's excrement-covered neck, and he can't stop kissing him. The verb there is ongoing. He can't stop kissing him. And then finally he comes up for some air and his son says and starts his speech, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. His father isn't even listening. He turns to his servants and orders them to start the party, to kill the fatted calf, to begin all the preparations because his son who is dead is now alive. Can we even get our heads around what Jesus' followers would have made of such a story? This boy did everything wrong he dishonored his parent in a way that was worthy of death. And what is the father doing? Who is this father? And of course, the story isn't over because the elder brother hears about what's going on. And where is he? He's out in the field doing his job as he has done all his life and ever since his wayward brother left. And when he hears the commotion and he comes in and he finds out what's going on, he is outraged and he will not come near the house. And his father has to go out to meet him. I've been here my whole life, and you've never thrown a party for me. What is it that you're doing here? Son, everything I have is yours. Can we get the depth of that statement? Everything that God has is already ours. 
What part of everything don't we understand? And to deny your brother anything less than everything doesn't give you more than everything that you've already got. How can we understand this any more deeply? We need both sons. We need to be both sons. We need the regularity and the dependability of the elder brother, and we need the spontaneity and the extravagance of the younger brother if we're ever going to understand what relationship we have with our God and who our God is because he is the absolute and perfect balance of both of those as well. Only when we've experienced life from the point of view of both of these sons does the fullness of God actually begin to appear in our lives. The perfect parent is dad acting like mom and mom acting like dad. Acceptance and change balanced with a love that always contains liking as well. This is where the scriptures are trying to take us. Whatever we need to let go of to be able to admit that this could possibly be true is the first step to experiencing the truth of it. And that truth will set us free from the fears that drive us in the other direction. This is where Jesus is taking us. This is where the scriptures are taking us. And this Mother's Day, let's see if we can take ourselves a little bit further down that road to seeing the balance in our God so that we can find the balance in ourselves. Let's pray. Father, you are the perfect parent, your perfect balance, your perfect paradox, which is why it's so hard for us to understand you, to admit who you really are in our lives. Sometimes we'd rather be outraged, angry at the excesses we see in your love. Help us to get beyond that. Help us to become ripe enough to see who you really are and how it's the only way that you can be. And ultimately, it's the only way that we can be if we want to be with you. Thank you for this. Thank you for this Mother's Day, Lord, this reminder of so much of the unseen work that goes on in our families and in our culture. Help us to celebrate it, not just today, but every day. To begin to value the things that are unseen, the things that we can't measure as much as the things that we can so that we can find this balance as well and emulate you, model you more and more in our lives. Thank you, Father, for loving us this way, for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.